Chapter 5 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 5 Slaves. As we descended the broad staircase which led to the main avenue of Futra, I caught my first sight of the dominant race of the inner world. Involuntarily, I shrank back as one of the creatures approached to inspect us. A more hideous thing it would be impossible to imagine. The all-powerful Maharas of Pellucidar are great reptiles, some six or eight feet in length, with long, narrow heads and great round eyes. Their beak-like mouths are lined with sharp, white fangs, and the backs of their huge lizard bodies are serrated into bony ridges from their necks to the end of their long tails. Their feet are equipped with three webbed toes, while from the forefeet membranous wings, which are attached to their bodies just in front of the hind legs, protrude at an angle of forty-five degrees toward the rear, ending in sharp points several feet above their bodies. I glanced at Perry as the thing passed me to inspect him. The old man was gazing at the horrid creature with wide, astonished eyes. When it passed on, he turned to me. "'A ram for Hinchus of the Middle Olytic, David,' he said. "'But, Gad, how enormous! The largest remains we ever have discovered have never indicated a size greater than that attained by an ordinary crow.' As we continued on through the main avenue of Futra, we saw many thousands of the creatures coming and going upon their daily duties. They paid but little attention to us. Futra is laid out underground with a regularity that indicates remarkable engineering skill. It is hewn from solid limestone strata. The streets are broad and of a uniform height of twenty feet. At intervals, tubes pierce the roof of this underground city, and by means of lenses and reflectors transmit the sunlight, softened and diffused, to dispel what would otherwise be Sumerian darkness. In like manner, air is introduced. Perry and I were taken, with Gak, to a large public building, where one of the Sagoths who had formed our guard explained to a Maharan official the circumstances surrounding our capture. The method of communication between these two was remarkable, in that no spoken words were exchanged. They employed a species of sign language. As I was to learn later, the Mahars have no ears, not any spoken language. Among themselves they communicate by means of what Perry says must be a sixth sense which is cognizant of a fourth dimension. I never did quite grasp him, though he endeavored to explain it to me upon numerous occasions. I suggested telepathy, but he said no, that it was not telepathy, since they could only communicate when in each other's presence nor could they talk with the Sagoths or the other inhabitants of Pellucidar by the same method they used to converse with one another. "'What they do,' said Perry, "'is to project their thoughts into the fourth dimension, when they become appreciable to the sixth sense of their listener. Do I make myself quite clear?' "'You do not, Perry,' I replied. He shook his head in despair and returned to his work. They had set us to carrying a great accumulation of Maharan literature from one apartment to another, and there arranging it upon shelves. I suggested to Perry that we were in the public library of Futra. But later, as he commenced to discover the key to their written language, he assured me that we were handling the ancient archives of the race. 
During this period my thoughts were continually upon Dian the Beautiful. I was, of course, glad that she had escaped the Mahars, and the fate that had been suggested by the Sagoth who had threatened to purchase her upon our arrival at Futra. I often wondered if the little party of fugitives had been overtaken by the guards who had returned to search for them. Sometimes I was not so sure but that I should have been more contented to know that Dion was here in Futra, than to think of her at the mercy of Huja the Sly One. Gak, Perry, and I often talked together of possible escape, but the Sarian was so steeped in his lifelong belief that no one could escape from the Mahars except by a miracle, that he was not much aid to us. His attitude was of one who waits for the miracle to come to him. At my suggestion, Perry and I fashioned some swords of scraps of iron, which we discovered among some rubbish in the cells where we slept, for we were permitted almost unrestrained freedom of action within the limits of the building to which we had been assigned. So great were the number of slaves who waited upon the inhabitants of Futra, that none of us was apt to be overburdened with work, nor were our masters unkind to us. We hid our new weapons beneath the skins which formed our beds and when Perry conceived the idea of making bows and arrows, weapons apparently unknown within Pellucidar. Next came shields, but these I found it easier to steal from the walls of the outer guardroom of the building. We had completed these arrangements for our protection after leaving Futra, when the Sagoths who had been sent to recapture the escaped prisoners returned with four of them, of whom Huja was one. Dian and the two others had eluded them. It so happened that Huja was confined in the same building with us. He told Gak that he had not seen Dian or the others after releasing them within the dark grotto. What had become of them he had not the faintest conception. They might be wandering yet, lost within the labyrinthine tunnel, if not dead from starvation. I was now still further apprehensive as to the fate of Dian, and at this time, I imagine, came the first realization that my affection for the girl might be prompted by more than friendship. During my waking hours she was constantly the subject of my thoughts, and when I slept her dear face haunted my dreams. More than ever was I determined to escape the Mahars. Perry, I confided to the old man, if I have to search every inch of this diminutive world I am going to find Dean the Beautiful and right the wrong I unintentionally did her. That was the excuse I made for Perry's benefit. "'Diminutive world!' he scoffed. "'You don't know what you're talking about, my boy!' And then he showed me a map of Pellucidar which he had recently discovered among the manuscript he was arranging. "'Look!' he cried, pointing to it. "'This is evidently water, and all this land. Do you notice the general configuration of the two areas? Where the oceans are upon the outer crust is land here.' These relatively small areas of ocean follow the general lines of the continents of the outer world. We know that the crust of the globe is five hundred miles in thickness. Then the inside diameter of Pellucidar must be seven thousand miles, and the superficial area one hundred sixty-five million four hundred eighty thousand square miles. Three-fourths of this is land. Think of it! A land area of a hundred twenty-four million one hundred ten thousand square miles. Our own world contains but fifty-three million square miles of land, the balance of its surface being covered by water. Just as we often compare nations by their relative land areas, so if we compare these two worlds in the same way, 
we have the strange anomaly of a larger world within a smaller one. Where, within the vast Pellucidar, would you search for your Dian? Without stars, or moon, or changing sun, how could you find her even though you knew where she might be found?" The proposition was a corker. It quite took my breath away. But I found that it left me all the more determined to attempt it. "'If Gak will accompany us, we may be able to do it,' I suggested. Perry and I sought him out and put the question straight to him. Gak, I said, we are determined to escape from this bondage. Will you accompany us? They will set the Thiptars upon us, he said, and then we shall be killed. But, he hesitated, I would take the chance if I thought that I might possibly escape and return to my own people. Could you find your way back to your own land? asked Perry, and could you aid David in his search for Dian? Yes. But how, persisted Perry, could you travel to strange country without heavenly bodies or a compass to guide you? Gek didn't know what Perry meant by heavenly bodies or a compass, but he assured us that you might blindfold any man of Pellucidar and carry him to the farthermost corner of the world, yet he would be able to come directly to his own home again by the shortest route. He seemed surprised to think that we found anything wonderful in it. Perry said it must be some sort of homing instinct such as is possessed by certain breeds of earthly pigeons. I didn't know, of course, but it gave me an idea. "'Then Dian could have found her way directly to her own people?' I asked. "'Surely,' replied Gak, "'unless some mighty beast of prey killed her.' I was for making the attempted escape at once, but both Perry and Gak counseled waiting for some propitious accident which would ensure us some small degree of success. I didn't see what accident could befall a whole community in a land of perpetual daylight, where the inhabitants had no fixed habits of sleep. Why, I am sure that some of the Mahars never sleep, while others may, at long intervals, crawl into the dark recesses beneath their dwellings and curl up in protracted slumber. Perry says that if a Mahar stays awake for three years, he will make up all his lost sleep in a long year's snooze. That may be all true but I never saw but three of them asleep, and it was the sight of these three that gave me a suggestion for our means of escape. I had been searching about far below the levels that we slaves were supposed to frequent, possibly fifty feet beneath the main floor of the building, among a network of corridors and apartments, when I came suddenly upon three mahars curled up upon a bed of skins. At first I thought they were dead but later their regular breathing convinced me of my error. Like a flash the thought came to me of the marvelous opportunity these sleeping reptiles offered, as a means of eluding the watchfulness of our captors and the Sagoth guards. Hastening back to Perry, where he pored over a musty pile of, to me, meaningless hieroglyphics, I explained my plan to him. To my surprise he was horrified. "'It would be murder, David!' he cried. Murder to kill a reptilian monster? I asked in astonishment. Here they are not monsters, David, he replied. Here they are the dominant race. We are the monsters, the lower orders. In Pellucidar, evolution has progressed along different lines than upon the outer earth. These terrible convulsions of nature, time and time again, wiped out the existing species, 
but for this fact some monster of the Sorozoic epoch might rule today upon our own world. We see here what might well have occurred in our own history had conditions been what they have been here. Life within Pellucidar is far younger than upon the outer crust. Here man has but reached a stage analogous to the Stone Age of our own world's history, but for countless millions of years these reptiles have been progressing. Possibly it is the sixth sense which I am sure they possess that has given them an advantage over the other and more frightfully armed of their fellows, but this we may never know. They look upon us as we look upon the beasts of our fields, and I learn from their written records that other races of Mahars feed upon men, they keep them in great droves as we keep cattle. They breed them most carefully, and when they are quite fat, they kill and eat them." I shuddered. "'What is there horrible about it, David?' the old man asked. "'They understand us no better than we understand the lower animals of our own world. Why, I have come across here very learned discussions of the question as to whether Gilaks, that is, men, have any means of communication. One writer claims that we do not even reason, that our every act is mechanical or instinctive. The dominant race of Pellucidar, David, have not yet learned that men converse among themselves or reason. Because we do not converse as they do, it is beyond them to imagine that we converse at all. It is thus that we reason in relation to the brutes of our own world. They know that the Sagoths have a spoken language, but they cannot comprehend it, or how it manifests itself, since they have no auditory apparatus. They believe that the motion of the lips alone convey the meaning. That the Sagoths can communicate with us is incomprehensible to them. Yes, David, he concluded, it would entail murder to carry out your plan. Very well, then, Perry. I replied, I shall become a murderer. He got me to go over the plan again most carefully, and for some reason, which was not at the time clear to me, insisted upon a very careful description of the apartments and corridors I had just explored. I wonder, David, he said at length, as you are determined to carry out your wild scheme, if we could not accomplish something of very real and lasting benefit for the human race of Pellucidar at the same time. Listen, I have learned much of a most surprising nature from these archives of the Mahars. That you may not appreciate my plan, I shall briefly outline the history of the race. Once the males were all-powerful, but ages ago the females, little by little, assumed the mastery. For other ages no noticeable change took place in the race of Mahars. It continued to progress under the intelligent and beneficent rule of the ladies. Science took vast strides. This was especially true of the sciences which we know as biology and eugenics. Finally, a certain female scientist announced the fact that she had discovered a method whereby eggs might be fertilized by chemical means after they were laid. All true reptiles, you know, are hatched from eggs. What happened? Immediately the necessity for males ceased to exist. The race was no longer dependent upon them. More ages elapsed until at the present time we find a race consisting exclusively of females. But here is the point. The secret of this chemical formula is kept by a single race of Mahars. It is in the city of Futra, and unless I am greatly in error, I judge from your description of the vaults through which you pass today that it lies hidden in the cellar of this building. 
For two reasons they hide it away and guard it jealously. First, because upon it depends the very life of the race of Mahars. And second, owing to the fact that, when it was public property as at first, so many were experimenting with it that the danger of overpopulation became very grave. David, if we can escape, and at the same time take with us this great secret, what will we not have accomplished for the human race within Pellucidar? The very thought of it fairly overpowered me. Why, we too would be the means of placing the men of the inner world in their rightful place among created things. Only the Sagoths would then stand between them and absolute supremacy, and I was not quite sure but that the Sagoths owed all their power to the greater intelligence of the Mahars. I could not believe that these gorilla-like beasts were the mental superiors of the human race of Pellucidar. "'Why, Perry!' I exclaimed. "'You and I may reclaim a whole world. Together we can lead the races of men out of the darkness of ignorance into the light of advancement and civilization. At one step we may carry them from the age of stone to the twentieth century. It's marvelous, absolutely marvelous, just to think about it.' "'David,' said the old man, "'I believe that God sent us here for just that purpose. It shall be my life-work to teach them His word, to lead them into the light of His mercy while we are training their hearts and hands in the ways of culture and civilization.' "'You are right, Perry,' I said. "'And while you are teaching them to pray, I'll be teaching them to fight. And between us we'll make a race of men that will be an honor to us both.' Gack had entered the apartment some time before we concluded our conversation, and now he wanted to know what we were so excited about. Perry thought we had best not tell him too much, and so I only explained that I had a plan for escape. When I had outlined it to him he seemed about as horror-struck as Perry had been, but for a different reason. The hairy one only considered the horrible fate that would be ours were we discovered but at last I prevailed upon him to accept my plan as the only feasible one, and when I had assured him that I would take all the responsibility for it were we captured, he accorded a reluctant assent. End of chapter 5「Chapter 6 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 6 The Beginning of Horror Within Pellucidar one time is as good as another. There were no nights to mask our attempted escape. All must be done in broad daylight, all but the work I had to do in the apartment beneath the building. So we determined to put our plan to an immediate test, lest the Mahars who made it possible should awake before I reached them. But we were doomed to disappointment for no sooner had we reached the main floor of the building on our way to the pits beneath than we encountered hurrying bands of slaves being hastened under strong Sagoth guard out of the edifice to the avenue beyond. Other Sagoths were darting hither and thither in search of other slaves, and the moment that we appeared we were pounced upon and hustled into the line of marching humans. What the purpose or nature of the general exodus we did not know but presently through the line of captives ran the rumor that two escaped slaves had been recaptured, a man and a woman, and that we were marching to witness their punishment, for the man had killed a Sagoth of the detachment that had pursued and overtaken them. 
At the intelligence my heart sprang to my throat, for I was sure that the two were of those who escaped in the dark grotto with Hooja the Sly One, and that Dian must be the woman. Gak thought so too, as did Perry. "'Is there naught that we may do to save her?' I asked Gak. "'Naught,' he replied. Along the crowded avenue we marched, the guard showing unusual cruelty toward us, as though we too had been implicated in the murder of their fellow. The occasion was to serve as an object lesson to all other slaves of the danger and futility of attempted escape, and the fatal consequences of taking the life of a superior being, and so I imagined that Sagoth felt amply justified in making the entire proceeding as uncomfortable and painful to us as possible. They jabbed us with their spears and struck at us with the hatchets at the least provocation, and at no provocation at all. It was a most uncomfortable half-hour that we spent before we were finally herded through a low entrance into a huge building, the center of which was given up to a good-sized arena. Benches surrounding this open space were upon three sides, and along the fourth were heaped huge boulders which rose in receding tiers toward the roof. At first I could make out the purpose of this mighty pile of rock, unless it were intended as a rough and picturesque background for the scenes which were enacted in the arena before it. But presently, after the wooden benches had been pretty well filled by slaves and sagoths, I discovered the purpose of the boulders, for then the mahars began to file into the enclosure. They marched directly across the arena toward the rocks upon the opposite side, where, spreading their bat-like wings, they rose above the high wall of the pit, settling down upon the boulders above. These were the reserved seats, the boxes of the elect. Reptiles that they were, the rough surface of a great stone is to them as plush as upholstery is to us. Here they lolled, blinking their hideous eyes, and doubtless conversing with one another in their sixth-sense fourth-dimension language. For the first time I beheld their queen. She differed from the others in no feature that was appreciable to my earthly eyes. In fact, all Mahars look alike to me. But when she crossed the arena after the balance of her female subjects had found their boulders, she was preceded by a score of huge sagoths, the largest I had ever seen, and on either side of her waddled a huge thipdar, while behind came another score of sagoth guardsmen. At the barrier the sagoths clambered up the steep side with truly ape-like agility while behind them the haughty queen rose upon her wings with her two frightful dragons close beside her, and settled down upon the largest boulder of them all in the exact center of that side of the amphitheater, which is reserved for the dominant race. Here she squatted, a most repulsive and uninteresting queen, though doubtless quite as well assured of her beauty and divine right to rule as the proudest monarch of the outer world. And then the music started music without sound. The Mahars cannot hear, so the drums and fifes and horns of earthly bands are unknown among them. The band consists of a score or more of Mahars. It filled out in the center of the arena where the creatures upon the rocks might see it, and there it performed for fifteen or twenty minutes. Their technique consisted in waving their tails and moving their heads in a regular succession of measured movements resulting in a cadence which evidently pleased the eye of the Mahar, as the cadence of our own instrumental music pleases our ears. Sometimes the band took measured steps in unison to one side or the other, or backward and again forward, 
It all seemed very silly and meaningless to me. But at the end of the first piece the Mahars upon the rocks showed the first indications of enthusiasm that I had seen displayed by the dominant race of Pellucidar. They beat their great wings up and down and smote their rocky perches with their mighty tails until the ground shook. Then the band started another piece and all was again as silent as the grave. That was one great beauty about Mahar music. If you didn't happen to like a piece that was being played, all you had to do was shut your eyes. When the band had exhausted its repertory it took wing and settled upon the rocks above and behind the queen. Then the business of the day was on. A man and woman were pushed into the arena by a couple of Sagoth guardsmen. I leaned forward in my seat to scrutinize the female, hoping against hope that she might prove to be another than Dion the Beautiful. Her back was toward me for a while, and the sight of the great mass of raven hair piled high upon her head filled me with alarm. Presently a door in one side of the arena wall was opened to admit a huge, shaggy, bull-like creature. "'A boss!' whispered Perry excitedly. "'His kind roamed the outer crust with the cave-bear and the mammoth ages and ages ago. We have been carried back a million years, David, to the childhood of a planet. Is it not wondrous?' But I saw only the raven hair of a half-naked girl, and my heart stood still in dumb misery at the sight of her, nor had I any eyes for the wonders of natural history. But for Perry and Gack I should have leapt to the floor of the arena and shared whatever fate lay in store for this priceless treasure of the Stone Age. With the advent of the boss, they called the thing a thag within Pellucidar, two spears were tossed into the arena at the feet of the prisoners. It seemed to me that a bean-shooter would have been as effective against the mighty monster as these pitiful weapons. As the animal approached the two, bellowing and pawing the ground with the strength of many earthly bulls, another door directly beneath us was opened, and from it issued the most terrific roar that ever had fallen upon my outraged ears. I could not at first see the beast from which emanated this fearsome challenge, but the sound had the effect of bringing the two victims around with a sudden start, and then I saw the girl's face. She was not Dean. I could have wept for relief. And now, as the two stood frozen in terror, I saw the author of that fearsome sound creeping stealthily into view. It was a huge tiger, such as hunted the great boasts through the jungle's primeval when the world was young. In contour and markings it was not unlike the noblest of the Bengals of our own world, but as its dimensions were exaggerated to colossal proportions, so too were its colorings exaggerated. Its vivid yellows fairly screamed aloud, its whites were as eider-down, its blacks glossy as the finest anthracite coal, and its coat long and shaggy as a mountain goat. That it is a beautiful animal there is no gainsaying. But if its size and colors are magnified here within Pellucidar, so is the ferocity of its disposition. It is not the occasional member of its species that is a man-hunter. All are man-hunters. But they do not confine their foraging to man alone, for there is no flesh or fish within Pellucidar that they will not eat with relish in the constant efforts which they make to furnish their huge carcasses with sufficient sustenance to maintain their mighty thews. Upon one side of the doomed pair the thag bellowed and advanced, and upon the other Tarag the frightful crept toward them with gaping mouth and dripping fangs. 
The man seized the spears, handing one of them to the woman. At the sound of the roaring of the tiger the bull's bellowing became a veritable frenzy of rageful noise. Never in my life had I heard such an infernal din as the two brutes made, and to think it was all lost upon the hideous reptiles for whom the show was staged. The thag was charging now from one side and the terag from the other. The two puny things standing between them seemed already lost, but at the very moment that the beasts were upon them the man grasped his companion by the arm and together they leapt to one side, while the frenzied creatures came together like locomotives in collision. There ensued a battle royal which, for sustained and frightful ferocity, transcends the power of imagination or description. Time and again the colossal bull tossed the enormous tiger high into the air, but each time that huge cat touched the ground he returned to the encounter with an apparently undiminished strength and seemingly increased ire. For a while the man and woman busied themselves only with keeping out of the way of the two creatures, but finally I saw them separate and each creep stealthily toward one of the combatants. The tiger was now upon the bull's broad back clinging to the huge neck with powerful fangs while its long, strong talons ripped the heavy hide into shreds and ribbons. For a moment the bull stood bellowing and quivering with pain and rage, its cloven hoofs widespread, its tail lashing viciously from side to side, and then in a mad orgy of bucking it went careening about the arena in frenzied attempt to unseat its rending rider. It was with difficulty that the girl avoided the first mad rush of the wounded animal. All its efforts to rid itself of the tiger seemed futile, until in desperation it threw itself upon the ground, rolling over and over. A little of this so disconcerted the tiger, knocking its breath from it, I imagine, that it lost its hold and then, quick as a cat, the great thag was up again and had buried those mighty horns deep in the terag's abdomen, pinning him to the floor of the arena. The great cat clawed at the shaggy head until eyes and ears were gone, and naught but a few strips of ragged bloody flesh remained upon the skull. Yet through all the agony of that fearful punishment the thag still stood motionless, pinning down his adversary. And then the man leapt in, seeing that the blind bull would be the least formidable enemy, and ran his spear through the terag's heart. As the animal's fierce clawing ceased, the bull raised his gory, sightless head, and with a horrid roar ran headlong across the arena. With great leaps and bounds he came, straight toward the arena wall directly beneath where we sat, and then accident carried him, in one of his mighty springs, completely over the barrier into the midst of the slaves and sagoths just in front of us. Swinging his bloody horns from side to side, the beast cut a wide swath before him, straight upward toward our seats. Before him slaves and gorilla men fought in mad stampede to escape the menace of the creature's death agonies, for such only could that frightful charge have been. Forgetful of us, our guards joined in the general rush for the exits, many of which pierced the wall of the amphitheatre behind us. Perry, Gack, and I became separated in the chaos which reigned for a few moments after the beast cleared the wall of the arena, each intent upon saving his own hide. I ran to the right passing several exits choked with the fear-mad mob that were battling to escape. One would have thought that an entire herd of thags was loose behind them, rather than a single, blinded, dying beast, but such is the effect of panic upon a crowd.
End of chapter 6「Freedom」Once out of the direct path of the animal, fear of it left me, but another emotion as quickly gripped me, hope of escape that the demoralized condition of the guards made possible for the instant. I thought of Perry but for the hope that I might better encompass his release if myself free, I should have put the thought of freedom from me at once. As it was, I hastened on toward the right searching for an exit toward which no Sagoths were fleeing, and at last I found it, a long, narrow aperture leading into a dark corridor. Without thought of the possible consequence, I darted into the shadows of the tunnel, feeling my way along through the gloom for some distance. The noises of the amphitheatre had grown fainter and fainter, until now all was as silent as the tomb about me. Faint light filtered from above through occasional ventilating and lighting tubes, but it was scarce sufficient to enable my human eyes to cope with the darkness, and so I was forced to move with extreme care, feeling my way along step by step with a hand upon the wall beside me. Presently the light increased, and a moment later, to my delight, I came upon a flight of steps leading upward, at the top of which the brilliant light of the noonday sun shone through an opening in the ground. Cautiously I crept up the stairway to the tunnel's end, and peering out saw the broad plain of Futra before me. The numerous lofty granite towers which marked the several entrances to the subterranean city were all in front of me. Behind the plain stretched level and unbroken to the nearby foothills. I had come to the surface then beyond the city, and my chances for escape seemed much enhanced. My first impulse was to await darkness before attempting to cross the plain, so deeply implanted are habits of thought, but of a sudden I recollected the perpetual noonday brilliance which envelops Pellucidar, and with a smile I stepped forth into the daylight. Rank grass, waist-high, grows upon the plain of Futra the gorgeous flowering grass of the inner world, each particular blade of which is tipped with a tiny, five-pointed blossom, brilliant little stars of varying colors that twinkle in the green foliage, to add still another charm to the weird yet lovely landscape. But then the only aspect which attracted me was the distant hills in which I hoped to find sanctuary, and so I hastened on trampling the myriad beauties beneath my hurrying feet. Perry says that the force of gravity is less upon the surface of the inner world than upon that of the outer. He explained it all to me once, but I was never particularly brilliant in such matters, and so most of it has escaped me. As I recall it, the difference is due in some part to the counter-attraction of that portion of the earth's crust directly opposite the spot upon the face of Pellucidar at which one's calculations are being made. Be that as it may, it always seemed to me that I moved with greater speed and agility within Pellucidar than upon the outer surface. There was a certain airy lightness of step that was most pleasing, and a feeling of bodily detachment which I can only compare with that occasionally experienced in dreams. And as I crossed Futra's flower-bespangled plain that time I seemed almost to fly, though how much of the sensation was due to Perry's suggestion and how much to actuality I am sure I do not know. The more I thought of Perry, the less pleasure I took in my new-found freedom. 
there could be no liberty for me within Pellucidar unless the old man shared it with me, and only the hope that I might find some way to encompass his release kept me from turning back to Futra. Just how I was to help Perry I could scarce imagine, but I hoped that some fortuitous circumstance might solve the problem for me. It was quite evident, however, that little less than a miracle could aid me, for what could I accomplish in this strange world, naked and unarmed? It was even doubtful that I could retrace my steps to Futra should I once pass beyond the view of the plain, and even were that possible, what aid could I bring to Perry, no matter how far I wandered? The case looked more and more hopeless the longer I viewed it. Yet, with a stubborn persistency, I forged ahead toward the foothills. Behind me, no sign of pursuit developed. Before me, I saw no living thing. It was as though I moved through a dead and forgotten world. I have no idea, of course, how long it took me to reach the limit of the plain, but at last I entered the foothills, following a pretty little canyon upward toward the mountains. Beside me frolicked a laughing brooklet hurrying upon its noisy way down to the silent sea. In its quieter pools I discovered many small fish, of four or five pound weight, I should imagine. In appearance, except as to size and color, they were not unlike the whale of our own seas. As I watched them playing about, I discovered not only that they suckled their young, but that at intervals they rose to the surface to breathe as well as to feed upon certain grasses and a strange scarlet lichen which grew upon the rocks just above the water-line. It was this last habit that gave me the opportunity I craved to capture one of these herbivorous cetaceans, that is what Perry calls them, and make as good a meal as one can on raw, warm-blooded fish. But I had become rather used by this time to the eating of food in its natural state, though I still balked on the eyes and entrails, much to the amusement of Gack, to whom I always passed these delicacies. Crouching beside the brook, I waited until one of the diminutive purple whales rose to nibble at the long grasses which overhung the water, and then, like the beast of prey that man really is, I sprang upon my victim, appeasing my hunger while he yet wriggled to escape. Then I drank from the clear pool, and after washing my hands and face, continued my flight. Above the source of the brook I encountered a rugged climb to the summit of a long ridge. Beyond was a steep declivity to the shore of a placid inland sea, upon the quiet surface of which lay several beautiful islands. The view was charming in the extreme, and as no man or beast was to be seen that might threaten my new-found liberty, I slid over the edge of the bluff, and half sliding, half falling, dropped into the delightful valley, the very aspect of which seemed to offer a haven of peace and security. The gently sloping beach along which I walked was thickly strewn with strangely shaped, colored shells, some empty, others still housing as varied a multitude of mollusks as ever might have drawn out their sluggish lives along the silent shores of the antediluvian seas of the outer crust. As I walked I could not but compare myself with the first man of that other world, so complete the solitude which surrounded me so primal and untouched the virgin wonders and beauties of adolescent nature. I felt myself a second Adam, wending my lonely way through the childhood of a world, searching for my Eve, and at the thought there rose before my mind's eye the exquisite outlines of a perfect face surmounted by a loose pile of wondrous raven hair. 
As I walked, my eyes were bent upon the beach, so that it was not until I had come quite upon it that I discovered that which shattered all my beautiful dream of solitude and safety and peace and primal overlordship. The thing was a huddled log drawn upon the sands, and in the bottom of it lay a crude paddle. The rude shock of awakening to what doubtless might prove some new form of danger was still upon me when I heard a rattling of loose stones from the direction of the bluff, and turning my eyes in that direction I beheld the author of the disturbance, a great copper-colored man, running rapidly toward me. There was that in the haste with which he came which seemed quite sufficiently menacing, so that I did not need the added evidence of brandishing spear and scowling face to warn me that I was in no safe position but whither to flee was indeed a momentous question. The speed of the fellow seemed to preclude the possibility of escaping him upon the open beach. There was but a single alternative, the rude skiff, and with a celerity which equaled his, I pushed the thing into the sea, and as it floated gave a final shove and clambered in over the end. A cry of rage rose from the owner of the primitive craft and an instant later his heavy, stone-tipped spear grazed my shoulder, and buried itself in the bow of the boat beyond. Then I grasped the paddle, and with feverish haste urged the awkward, wobbly thing out upon the surface of the sea. A glance over my shoulder showed me that the copper-colored one had plunged in after me, and was swimming rapidly in pursuit. His mighty strokes bade fair to close up the distance between us in short order for at best I could make but slow progress with my unfamiliar craft, which nosed stubbornly in every direction but that which I desired to follow, so that fully half my energy was expended in turning its blunt prow back into the course. I had covered some hundred yards from shore when it became evident that my pursuer must grasp the stern of the skiff within the next half-dozen strokes. In a frenzy of despair I bent to the grandfather of all paddles in a hopeless effort to escape and still the copper giant behind me gained and gained. His hand was reaching upward for the stern when I saw a sleek, sinuous body shoot from the depths below. The man saw it too, and the look of terror that overspread his face assured me that I need have no further concern as to him, for the fear of certain death was in his look. And then about him coiled the great, slimy folds of a hideous monster of that prehistoric deep a mighty serpent of the sea, with fanged jaws and darting forked tongue, with bulging eyes and bony protuberances upon head and snout that formed short, stout horns. As I looked at that hopeless struggle my eyes met those of the doomed man, and I could have sworn that in his I saw an expression of hopeless appeal. But whether I did or not there swept through me a sudden compassion for the fellow. He was indeed a brother-man and that he might have killed me with pleasure had he caught me was forgotten in the extremity of his danger. Unconsciously I had ceased paddling as a serpent rose to engage my pursuer, so now the skiff still drifted close beside the two. The monster seemed to be but playing with his victim before he closed his awful jaws upon him and dragged him down to his dark den beneath the surface to devour him. The huge, snake-like body coiled and uncoiled about its prey. The hideous, gaping jaws snapped in the victim's face. The forked tongue, lightning-like, ran in and out upon the copper skin. Nobly the giant battled for his life, beating with his stone hatchet against the bony armor that covered that frightful carcass. 
but for all the damage he inflicted he might as well have struck with his open palm. At last I could endure no longer to sit supinely by while a fellow-man was dragged down to a horrible death by that repulsive reptile. Embedded in the prow of the skiff lay the spear that had been cast after me by him whom I suddenly desired to save. With a wrench I tore it loose and, standing upright in the wobbly log, drove it with all the strength of my two arms straight into the gaping jaws of the hydrophidian. With a loud hiss the creature abandoned its prey to turn upon me, but the spear, embedded in its throat, prevented it from seizing me though it came near to overturning the skiff in its mad efforts to reach me. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 8 The Mahar Temple. The Aborigine, apparently uninjured, climbed quickly into the skiff, and seizing the spear with me, helped to hold off the infuriated creature. Blood from the wounded reptile was now crimsoning the waters about us and soon from the weakening struggles it became evident that I had inflicted a death-wound upon it. Presently its efforts to reach us ceased entirely, and with a few convulsive movements it turned upon its back, quite dead. And then there came to me a sudden realization of the predicament in which I had placed myself. I was entirely within the power of the savage man whose skiff I had stolen. Still clinging to the spear, I looked into his face to find him scrutinizing me intently, and there we stood for several minutes, each clinging tenaciously to the weapon the while we gazed in stupid wonderment at each other. What was in his mind I do not know, but in my own was merely the question as to how soon the fellow would recommence hostilities. Presently he spoke to me, but in a tongue which I was unable to translate. I shook my head in an effort to indicate my ignorance of his language, at the same time addressing him in the bastard tongue that the Sagoths used to converse with the human slaves of the Mahars. To my delight he understood and answered me in the same jargon. "'What do you want of my spear?' he asked. "'Only to keep you from running it through me?' I replied. "'I would not do that,' he said, "'for you have just saved my life.' and with that he released his hold upon it and squatted down in the bottom of the skiff. "'Who are you?' he continued, "'and from what country do you come?' I too sat down, laying the spear between us, and tried to explain how I came to Pellucidar and where from, but it was as impossible for him to grasp or believe the strange tale I told him as I fear it is for you upon the outer crust to believe in the existence of the inner world. To him it seemed quite ridiculous to imagine that there was another world far beneath his feet, peopled by beings similar to himself, and he laughed uproariously the more he thought upon it. But it was ever thus. That which has never come within the scope of our really pitifully meager world experience cannot be. Our finite minds cannot grasp that which may not exist in accordance with the conditions which obtain about us upon the outside of the insignificant grain of dust which wends its tiny way among the boulders of the universe, the speck of moist dirt we so proudly call the world. So I gave it up and asked him about himself. 
He said he was a Mizop and that his name was Ja. Who are the Mizops? I asked. Where do they live? He looked at me in surprise. I might indeed believe that you were from another world, he said. For who of Pellucidar could be so ignorant? The Mizops live upon the islands of the seas. In so far as I ever have heard, no Mizop lives elsewhere. And no others than Mizops dwell upon islands. But, of course, it may be different in other far distant lands. I do not know. At any rate, in this sea and those nearby it, it is true that only people of my race inhabit the islands. We are fishermen, though we be great hunters as well, often going to the mainland in search of the game that is scarce upon all but the larger islands. And we are warriors also," he added proudly. Even the Sagoths of the Mahars fear us. Once, when Pellucidar was young, the Sagoths were wont to capture us for slaves, as they do the other men of Pellucidar. It is handed down from father to son among us that this is so. But we fought so desperately and slew so many Sagoths that those of us that were captured killed so many Mahars in their own cities that at last they learned that it were better to leave us alone, and later came the time that the Mahars became too indolent even to catch their own fish, except for amusement, and then they needed us to supply their wants. And so a truce was made between the races. Now they give us certain things which we are unable to produce in return for the fish that we catch, and the Mizops and the Mahars live in peace. The Great Ones even come to our islands. It is there, far from the prying eyes of their own Sagoths, that they practice their religious rites in the temples they have builded there with our assistance. If you live among us you will doubtless see the manner of their worship, which is strange indeed and most unpleasant for the poor slaves they bring to take part in it." As Ja talked, I had an excellent opportunity to inspect him more closely. He was a huge fellow, standing, I should say, six feet six or seven inches, well-developed and of a coppery red not unlike that of our own North American Indian, nor were his features dissimilar to theirs. He had the aquiline nose found among many of the higher tribes, the prominent cheekbones and black hair and eyes. But his mouth and lips were better molded. All in all, Ja was an impressive and handsome creature, and he talked well too, even in the miserable makeshift language we were compelled to use. During our conversation Ja had taken the paddle and was propelling the skiff with vigorous strokes toward a large island that lay some half-mile from the mainland. The skill with which he handled his crude and awkward craft elicited my deepest admiration, since it had been so short a time before that I had made such pitiful work of it. As we touched the pretty level beach Ja leapt out and I followed him. Together we dragged the skiff far up into the bushes that grew beyond the sand. "'We must hide our canoes,' explained Ja, "'for the Mizops of Luana are always at war with us, and would steal them if they found them.' He nodded toward an island farther out at sea, and at so great a distance that it seemed but a blur hanging in the distant sky. The upward curve of the surface of Pellucidar was constantly revealing the impossible to the surprised eyes of the outer earthly. To see land and water curving upward in the distance, until it seemed to stand on edge where it melted into the distant sky, 
and to feel that seas and mountains hung suspended directly above one's head required such a complete reversal of the perspective and reasoning faculties as almost to stupefy one. No sooner had we hidden the canoe than Ja plunged into the jungle, presently emerging into a narrow but well-defined trail, which wound hither and thither much after the manner of the highways of all primitive folk. But there was one peculiarity about this Mesop trail which I was later to find distinguished them from all other trails that I ever have seen within or without the earth. It would run on, plain and clear and well-defined, to end suddenly in the midst of a tangle of matted jungle. Then Ja would turn directly back in his tracks for a little distance, spring into a tree, climb through it to the other side, drop onto a fallen log, leap over a low bush and alight once more upon a distinct trail which he would follow back for a short distance, only to turn directly about and retrace his steps until after a mile or less this new pathway ended as suddenly and mysteriously as the former section. Then he would pass again across some media which would reveal no spore, to take up the broken thread of the trail beyond. As the purpose of this remarkable avenue dawned upon me, I could not but admire the native shrewdness of the ancient progenitor of the Mesops, who hit upon this novel plan to throw his enemies from his track, and delay or thwart them in their attempts to follow him to his deep-buried cities. To you of the outer earth it might seem a slow and tortuous method of travelling through the jungle, but were you a Pellucidar you would realize that time is no factor where time does not exist. So labyrinthine are the windings of these trails, so varied the connecting links and the distances which one must retrace one's steps from the path's ends to find them, that a Mesop often reaches man's estate before he is familiar even with those which lead from his own city to the sea. In fact, three-fourths of the education of the young male Mesop consists in familiarizing himself with these jungle avenues and the status of an adult is largely determined by the number of trails which he can follow upon his own island. The females never learn them, since from birth to death they never leave the clearing in which the village of their nativity is situated, except that they be taken to mate by a male from another village or captured in war by the enemies of their tribe. After proceeding through the jungle for what must have been upward of five miles, we emerged suddenly into a large clearing in the exact centre of which stood as strange an appearing village as one might well imagine. Large trees had been chopped down fifteen or twenty feet above the ground, and upon the tops of them spherical habitations of woven twigs, mud-covered, had been built. Each ball-like house was surmounted by some manner of carven image, which, Ja told me, indicated the identity of the owner. Horizontal slits, six inches high and two or three feet wide, served to admit light and ventilation. The entrances to the house were through small apertures in the bases of the trees, and thence upward by rude ladders through the hollow trunks to the rooms above. The houses varied in size from two to several rooms. The largest that I entered was divided into two floors and eight apartments. All about the village, between it and the jungle, lay beautifully cultivated fields in which the Mesops raised such cereals, fruits, and vegetables as they required. Women and children were working in these gardens as we crossed toward the village. 
At sight of Ja they saluted deferentially, but to me they paid not the slightest attention. Among them and about the outer verge of the cultivated area were many warriors. These too saluted Ja by touching the points of their spears to the ground directly before them. Ja conducted me to a large house in the center of the village, the house with eight rooms, and taking me up into it gave me food and drink. There I met his mate, a comely girl with a nursing baby in her arms. Ja told her of how I had saved his life, and she was thereafter most kind and hospitable toward me, even permitting me to hold and amuse the tiny bundle of humanity whom Ja told me would one day rule the tribe for Ja, it seemed, was the chief of the community. We had eaten and rested, and I had slept, much to Ja's amusement, for it seemed that he seldom, if ever, did so. And then the red man proposed that I accompany him to the temple of the Mahars, which lay not far from his village. "'We are not supposed to visit it,' he said. "'But the great ones cannot hear, and if we keep well out of sight they need never know that we have been there.' For my part, I hate them, and always have, but the other chieftains of the island think it best that we continue to maintain the amicable relations which exist between the two races. Otherwise, I should like nothing better than to leave my warriors amongst the hideous creatures and exterminate them. Pellucidar would be a better place to live were there none of them." I wholly concurred in Jaw's belief but it seemed that it might be a difficult matter to exterminate the dominant race of Pellucidar. Thus conversing, we followed the intricate trail toward the temple, which we came upon in a small clearing surrounded by enormous trees, similar to those which must have flourished upon the outer crust during the Carboniferous Age. Here was a mighty temple of hewn rock, built in the shape of a rough oval, with rounded roof in which were several large openings. No doors or windows were visible in the sides of the structure, nor was there need of any, except one entrance for the slaves, since, as Jaw explained, the Mahars flew to and from their place of ceremonial, entering and leaving the building by means of the apertures in the roof. But, added Jaw, there is an entrance near the base, of which even the Mahars know nothing. Come. And he led me across the clearing and about the end to a pile of loose rock which lay against the foot of the wall. Here he removed a couple of large boulders, revealing a small opening which led straight within the building, or so it seemed, though as I entered after Jah, I discovered myself in a narrow place of extreme darkness. "'We are within the outer wall,' said Jah. "'It is hollow. Follow me closely.' The red man groped ahead a few paces, and then began to ascend a primitive ladder, similar to that which leads from the ground to the upper stories of his house. We ascended for some forty feet, when the interior of the space between the walls commenced to grow lighter, and presently we came opposite an opening in the inner wall which gave us an unobstructed view of the entire interior of the temple. The lower floor was an enormous tank of clear water, in which numerous hideous mahars swam lazily up and down. Artificial islands of granite rock dotted this artificial sea, and upon several of them I saw men and women like myself. "'What are the human beings doing here?' I asked. "'Wait, and you shall see,' replied Ja. 
They are to take a leading part in the ceremonies which will follow the advent of the Queen. You may be thankful that you are not upon the same side of the wall as they." Scarcely had he spoken than we heard a great fluttering of wings above, and a moment later a long procession of the frightful reptiles of Pellucidar winged slowly and majestically through the large central opening in the roof, and circled in stately manner about the temple. There were several Mahars first, and then at least twenty awe-inspiring pterodactyls, thiptars they are called within Pellucidar. Behind these came the queen, flanked by other thiptars, as she had been when she entered the amphitheatre at Futra. Three times they wheeled about the interior of the oval chamber, to settle finally upon the damp, cold boulders that fringed the outer edge of the pool. In the center of one side the largest rock was reserved for the queen, and here she took her place surrounded by her terrible guard. All lay quiet for several minutes after settling to their places. One might have imagined them in silent prayer. The poor slaves upon the diminutive islands watched the horrid creatures with wide eyes. The men, for the most part, stood erect and stately with folded arms, awaiting their doom. But the women and children clung to one another, hiding behind the males. They are a noble-looking race, these cavemen of Pellucidar, and if our progenitors were as they, the human race of the outer crust has deteriorated rather than improved with the march of ages. All they lack is opportunity. We have opportunity and little else." Now the queen moved. She raised her ugly head, looking about. Then, very slowly, she crawled to the edge of her throne and slid noiselessly into the water. Up and down the long tank she swam, turning at ends as you have seen captive seals turn in their tiny tanks, turning upon their backs and diving below the surface. Nearer and nearer to the island she came, until at last she remained at rest before the largest, which was directly opposite her throne. Raising her hideous head from the water, she fixed her great round eyes upon the slaves. They were fat and sleek, for they had been brought from a distant Mahar city where human beings are kept in droves, and bred and fattened as we breed and fatten beef cattle. The queen fixed her gaze upon a plump young maiden. Her victim tried to turn away, hiding her face in her hands and kneeling behind a woman. But the reptile, with unblinking eyes, stared on with such fixity that I could have sworn her vision penetrated the woman and the girl's arms to reach at last the very center of her brain. Slowly the reptile's head commenced to move to and fro, but the eyes never ceased to bore toward the frightened girl. And then the victim responded. She turned wide, fear-haunted eyes toward the Mahar Queen. Slowly she rose to her feet, and then, as though dragged by some unseen power, she moved as one in a trance straight toward the reptile, her glassy eyes fixed upon those of her captor. To the water's edge she came, nor did she even pause, but stepped into the shadows beside the little island. On she moved toward the Mahar, who now slowly retreated as though leading her victim on. The water rose to the girl's knees, and still she advanced, chained by that clammy eye. Now the water was at her waist, now her armpits. 
Her fellows upon the island looked on in horror, helpless to avert her doom in which they saw a forecast of their own. The mahar sank now till only the long upper bill and eyes were exposed above the surface of the water, and the girl had advanced until the end of that repulsive beak was but an inch or two from her face, her horror-filled eyes riveted upon those of the reptile. Now the water passed above the girl's mouth and nose, her eyes and forehead all that showed, yet still she walked on after the retreating mahar. The queen's head slowly disappeared beneath the surface, and after it went the eyes of her victim, only a slow ripple widened toward the shores to mark where the two had vanished. For a time all was silence within the temple. The slaves were motionless in terror. The Mahars watched the surface of the water for the reappearance of their queen, and presently, at one end of the tank, her head rose slowly into view. She was backing toward the surface, her eyes fixed before her as they had been when she dragged the helpless girl to her doom. And then, to my utter amazement, I saw the forehead and eyes of the maiden come slowly out of the depths, following the gaze of the reptile just as when she had disappeared beneath the surface. On and on came the girl until she stood in water that reached barely to her knees and though she had been beneath the surface sufficient time to have drowned her thrice over, there was no indication, other than her dripping hair and glistening body, that she had been submerged at all. Again and again the queen led the girl into the depths and out again, until the uncanny weirdness of the thing got on my nerves, so that I could have leapt into the tank to the child's rescue had I not taken a firm hold of myself. Once they were below much longer than usual, and when they came to the surface I was horrified to see that one of the girl's arms was gone, gnawed completely off at the shoulder. But the poor thing gave no indication of realizing pain, only the horror in her set eyes seemed intensified. The next time they appeared the other arm was gone, and then the breasts, and then a part of the face. It was awful. The poor creatures on the islands awaiting their fate tried to cover their eyes with their hands to hide the fearful sight, but now I saw that they too were under the hypnotic spell of the reptiles, so that they could only crouch in terror with their eyes fixed upon the terrible thing that was transpiring before them. Finally the queen was under much longer than ever before, and when she rose she came alone and swam sleepily toward her boulder. The moment she mounted it seemed to be the signal for the other Mahars to enter the tank, and then commenced, upon a larger scale, a repetition of the uncanny performance through which the Queen had led her victim. Only the women and children fell prey to the Mahars, they being the weakest and most tender, and when they had satisfied their appetite for human flesh, some of them devouring two and three of the slaves, there were only a score of full-grown men left and I thought for some reason these were to be spared, but such was far from the case. For as the last Mahar crawled to a rock, the Queen's Thiptars darted into the air, circled the temple once, and then, hissing like steam-engines, swooped down upon the remaining slaves. There was no hypnotism here, just the plain, brutal ferocity of the beast of prey, tearing, rending, and gulping its meat 
but at that it was less horrible than the uncanny method of the Mahars. By the time the Thiptars had disposed of the last of the slaves, the Mahars were all asleep upon their rocks, and a moment later the great pterodactyls swung back to their posts beside the queen, and themselves dropped into slumber. "'I thought the Mahars seldom, if ever, slept,' I said to Ja. "'They do many things in this temple which they do not do elsewhere,' he replied. "'The Mahars of Futra are not supposed to eat human flesh. Yet slaves are brought here by thousands, and almost always you will find Mahars on hand to consume them. I imagine that they do not bring their Sagoths here because they are ashamed of the practice, which is supposed to obtain only among the least advanced of their race. But I would wager my canoe against a broken paddle that there is no Mahar but eats human flesh whenever she can get it." "'Why should they object to eating human flesh?' I asked if it is true that they look upon us as lower animals. It is not because they consider us their equals that they are supposed to look with abhorrence upon those who eat our flesh," replied Ja. It is merely that we are warm-blooded animals. They would not think of eating the meat of a thag, which we consider such a delicacy, any more than I would think of eating a snake. As a matter of fact, it is difficult to explain just why this sentiment should exist among them. I wonder if they left a single victim," I remarked, leaning far out of the opening in the rocky wall to inspect the temple better. Directly below me the water lapped the very side of the wall, there being a break in the boulders at this point as there was at several other places about the side of the temple. My hands were resting upon a small piece of granite which formed a part of the wall, and all my weight upon it proved too much for it. It slipped, and I lunged forward. There was nothing to save myself, and I plunged head-foremost into the water below. Fortunately, the tank was deep at this point, and I suffered no injury from the fall. But as I was rising to the surface, my mind filled with the horrors of my position, as I thought of the terrible doom which awaited me the moment the eyes of the reptiles fell upon the creature that had disturbed their slumber. As long as I could, I remained beneath the surface, swimming rapidly in the direction of the islands that I might prolong my life to the utmost. At last I was forced to rise for air, and as I cast a terrified glance in the direction of the Mahars and the Thiptars, I was almost stunned to see that not a single one remained upon the rocks where I had last seen them, nor, as I searched the temple with my eyes, could I discern any within it. For a moment I was puzzled to account for the thing until I realized that the reptiles, being deaf, could not have been disturbed by the noise my body made when it hit the water, and that as there is no such thing as time within Pellucidar, there was no telling how long I had been beneath the surface. It was a difficult thing to attempt to figure out by earthly standards, this matter of elapsed time. But when I set myself to it, I began to realize that I might have been submerged a second, or a month, or not at all you have no conception of the strange contradictions and impossibilities which arise when all methods of measuring time, as we know them upon earth, are non-existent. I was about to congratulate myself upon the miracle which has saved me for the moment, when the memory of the hypnotic powers of the Mahars filled me with apprehension, lest they be practicing their uncanny art upon me to the end 
that I merely imagined that I was alone in the temple. At the thought cold sweat broke out upon me from every pore, and as I crawled from the water onto one of the tiny islands I was trembling like a leaf. You cannot imagine the awful horror which even the simple thought of the repulse of Mahars of Pellucidar induces in the human mind, and to feel that you are in their power, that they are crawling, slimy and abhorrent, to drag you down beneath the waters and devour you. It is frightful. But they did not come, and at last I came to the conclusion that I was indeed alone within the temple. How long I should be alone was the next question to assail me, as I swam frantically about once more in search of a means to escape. Several times I called to Ja, but he must have left after I tumbled into the tank, for I received no response to my cries. Doubtless he had felt as certain of my doom when he saw me topple from our hiding-place as I had, and lest he too should be discovered had hastened from the temple and back to his village. I knew that there must be some entrance to the building beside the doorways in the roof, for it did not seem reasonable to believe that the thousands of slaves which were brought here to feed the Mahars the human flesh they craved would all be carried through the air, and so I continued my search until at last it was rewarded by the discovery of several loose granite blocks in the masonry at one end of the temple. A little effort proved sufficient to dislodge enough of these stones to permit me to crawl through into the clearing, and a moment later I had scurried across the intervening space to the dense jungle beyond. Here I sank panting and trembling upon the matted grasses beneath the giant trees, for I felt that I had escaped from the grinning fangs of death out of the depths of my own grave. Whatever dangers lay hidden in this island jungle, there could be none so fearsome as those which I had just escaped. I knew that I could meet death bravely enough if it but came in the form of some familiar beast or man, anything other than the hideous and uncanny Mahars. End of chapter 8